every year in the B cycle of Sunday readings, we'd normally follow the gospel of Mark all the way through, but in the, the middle of the summer, we get five weeks where we flip over to the gospel of John and get this teaching on the Eucharist in John's gospel. He doesn't talk at the Last Supper about the institution of the Eucharist like the other three gospels, but John takes this sixth chapter to give his teaching of Jesus on the Eucharist. And what I have chosen to do over these five weeks, really, I guess, uh, we've got the assumption thrown in there this year, so it's a little different, but I have chosen to focus on not so much a, a teaching on the gospel specifically or even the Eucharist specifically, but to look rather at the mass, the, the ritual, the worship that we do when we come to celebrate the Eucharist. And so I began last Sunday uh, with uh, an introduction to the, the mass in general and then looked at the, the beginning of mass in what are known as the introductory rites. Now, because uh, we have so many masses here in Flip Priest, uh, you might not be at the, the mass that I always celebrate. So if you want last week's introduction, uh, to the Mass and want to follow the whole course of this sermon series, uh, it's a course on website, seanthebaptist.org. That's uh, on the front of your bulletin under my name, if you forget that, but seanthebaptist.org for the entire series. So I mentioned last week I looked at the introductory rites. This week I'd like to, to look at the rest of that first half of the Mass that we call the, the Liturgy of the Word ever since the, the Second Vatican Council had introduced that term, the Liturgy of the Word. We used to have the, uh, the Mass of the, the Catechumens, uh, the first half of the Mass, those would, because that Mass is, that part of the Mass is open to even those who are not baptized yet. And then the second half, the Mass of the Faithful, where we celebrate the Eucharistic self, reserved, of course, to those who are, are Catholic. Now we use the term as the Liturgy of the Word, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So today I, I'll continue to look at the rest of the, the liturgy of the word. And just right in that, of course, it draws our attention to what is the probably the foremost preeminent part of the, the first half of the mass, and that is the, the readings from the sacred scriptures. This is uh, a part that we, we hold in tradition. This would have been what Jesus would have done when he went to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath. This is the, the synagogue worship. The, the synagogue means to, to come together. And when the Jewish people came together, what did they do? Well, they, they read the Torah and the other sacred writings. And then the, the rabbi, the teacher, would give a little reflection. So what we do is very much what Jesus would have done every Sabbath in the synagogue. The Second Vatican Council teaches us in the sacred constitution on the liturgy about the various ways that Jesus is actually present in the Mass. And oftentimes we do think about the Eucharist and what presence is so unique and specific that we actually call it the real presence. But the Church also teaches that Jesus is present in other ways at the celebration of the Mass, not just in the Eucharistic species. And one of the foremost ways that he is present is in his Word. Sacrosanta Concilium, the Constitution and the Liturgy, says that Christ himself is present in his word, since Christ himself speaks whenever the scriptures are read in the church. So it would be, I think, easy for us to, to think of the readings almost as some kind of didactic teaching or like a, a Bible study. We're gonna, we're gonna read the Bible and then we're, we're gonna talk about it. 
But as we talked last week, that the celebration of the liturgy is so much more than, than simply some earthly kind of ritual where we, we do certain things almost to you know, pass the time or something. Uh, this is much more than simply a Bible study or a, a reading from the Bible, and then we're going to talk about it. It's the word. Notice the word is, is the term that we use to refer often to the second person of the Holy Trinity that existed from, from all time, outside of time. The second person of the Holy Trinity spoke and all of the world came into existence. The word of God said, let there be light, and there was. So that the word is, is much more powerful than simply stuff on a page that we would read. The word is a person, the second person of the Holy Trinity who becomes incarnate, taking on flesh, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the creed, but that second person of the Holy Trinity takes on flesh such that John's gospel can say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what happened at the Annunciation when Jesus becomes one of us. He gets a name, Jesus becomes human, and the word becomes flesh. So the word is so much more than just text. It's a person. So as the Second Vatican Council tells us, when the word is read in the church, Christ himself speaks. And in a real way, Christ himself becomes present in the word because he is the word. And the word is powerful. So with that background then to say, when we listen then to the scriptures read at mass, it is, yes, it's a ritual action that we do, but it is also a making present of the author of that word, the word himself, Jesus Christ. Now, with that kind of theological point out of the way, let's talk a little bit about where do we get the, the scriptures that we read at Mass? Well, I once had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door and Mormons and those other people, but particularly one time I remember some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door and they said, we'd like to share the word with you. I'm like, oh, that's great. And they, they pulled out their Bibles and they, they read from the Bible to me and that was nice. And rather than talk about the particular passage that they read, I just said, okay, now, let me ask you a question. That Bible you've got in your hand there, where did you get it? Well, uh, you know, this is, of course, a translation. We know that, but, you know, uh, it, it goes back to the, the oldest text. I'm like, no, 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 I, I get that. But even the oldest text, like, how do you know, like, what's in your Bible? Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, if you open it up the front, there's a table of contents that says this is the Bible. Where'd that come from? Well, we don't know. Well, let me tell you where it came from. So for the Old Testament, obviously the Jews were using certain books, but for the whole New Testament, the church, the Catholic church, had to say amongst all the writings that were out there that could potentially be included in the Bible, the Catholic church got together in several councils with a bunch of bishops and said, these books are the scriptures, these only and none other. And the way that they determined, like, what books are in and, and what out. They, they looked at certainly manuscript traditions, but the number one thing that led to the formation of the Bible as we know it is the church had to say which books are going to be allowed to be read at mass. Which books go in the missal, the, the lectionary as we have it today? Which writings are sacred and inspired such that we will read them at the sacred worship of God 
And when we read them, we know that the author is Jesus, and so Jesus Christ himself speaks. If Jesus speaks through his word proclaimed at the liturgy, then we have to know which books are written by Jesus, which books are divine in their origin. And so that's how the whole Bible came about. The Catholic Church sat down and said, these books are at Mass, and we will read them, none others. So it's good to kind of keep in mind, like just people who bring the Bible to us. Well, where did the Bible come from? The Bible was primarily born out of the the liturgy. We got to have a a collection of what's approved. And so we have the readings at Mass. Now, for uh, a long time, last time, again, see the homily from last week, I, I will from here on refer to the Latin Mass or the traditional Latin Mass, the Mass as it existed for about 1,500 years up to the time of the Second Vatican Council, there were two readings. There was the first reading was uh, an epistle because it was normally one of the New Testament readings, sometimes a prophecy of the Old Testament. And then there's the the gospel. Uh, After the Second Vatican Council, we, on Sundays, uh, we have three readings now. So that the structure is there's an Old Testament reading for for most of the year, although during Easter, it's, it's from the Acts of the Apostles. But most of the time, there's an Old Testament reading, and then the second reading is always from the New Testament, and then there's the, the gospel. Something to keep in, in mind in that kind of uh, structure, uh, that this is for Sunday. The, the weekdays, of course, have their own structure, and there's normally one reading before the gospel and then the gospel. It's a little confusing now because one of the things the Second Vatican Council wanted to do was expose us to more of the sacred scriptures. So there are two different cycles of readings going on throughout the year. And this is why you notice in your hymnals uh, that you have to flip to the right year to find the readings, year A, B, or C, because on Sundays, the, the scriptures are broken down into three different cycles of readings, A, B, and C. We're in year B right now. So as I said at the beginning, year B is largely the Gospel of Mark, year A is Matthew, and year C is Luke. And then John gets kind of sprinkled in amongst A, B, and C. So on the Sundays, we have a three-year cycle of readings. During the weekdays, we have a two-year cycle of readings. And as if A, B, and C weren't just incredible names in the first place, the the names of the cycle of readings for the weekdays are year one and year two. So we're pretty flashy in the Catholic Church. Uh, We have year one and year two during the weekdays, and we have years A, B, and C on the weekends. So keep that in mind. If you're flipping through the readings, it's not always so easy to find which one we're talking about. So we're in year B uh, right now. Uh, So that's what you're looking for in your hymnals. Amongst that then, as we go through the, the gospels, notice one thing that might help you kind of prepare then as you come to mass. On the Sundays, the, the first reading and the gospel are always chosen to go together. So we have the gospel that we're going through in Mark, or say for instance, or right now in John. We'll look at the first reading. It's gonna match up somehow the Old Testament with the gospel. So what do we have in our first reading today? Well, we have the story about the Israelites asking for food in the wilderness as they're, they're wandering in those, those years before they enter the promised land. They're hungry, they want food, and God famously gives them the manna, the bread from heaven miraculous bread. Hmm. Look at our gospel. What do we've got? John's teaching on the more than miraculous bread, the bread that he turns into his very body, the Eucharist. So you see how that's, that's deliberate. So you can always kind of look for that connection that's normally there. Somehow 
you might ask yourself, okay, how did the gospel and the first reading go together? Because you'll normally find that on the Sundays. The second reading is normally just a continuation. So we're just taking a book of the New Testament, often an epistle of St. Paul, and we just read it over and over, kind of almost front to back over the course of several weeks. So it normally does not connect with the, the other two readings. So kind of keep that in mind. Now, I kind of glanced over in between the first and second reading, we have ordinarily a, a psalm. In fact, it's, it's often called today the responsorial psalm. Uh, prior to the Second Vatican Council, this was called the gradual, uh, and it would not be repeated by people. It would be a part of a psalm that would just be sung by the, the scola. It would be chanted, more of that Gregorian chant that I, I talked about last time. Uh, this is also, you might say, this is a reading from the sacred scripture. And so the word gradual refers to gradus as a step. So the, the psalm would be intoned from the, the step. There would be steps going up to preach and the psalm was done from the step. Now, oftentimes, the responsorial psalm is done from the ambo uh, to emphasize that it's not, um, it's not a little song that's thrown in in between the readings to kind of like break it up. Like, okay, we had a reading. Now we're going to sing a little song to kind of break it up. No, the, the psalm is itself sacred scripture. It is often from the book of Psalms, which are sacred texts written by King David, we believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so David writes the book of Psalms, and uh, these are some of the most beautiful uh, pieces of scripture that he would have probably composed to be sung. Yeah, oftentimes, King David is, is seen holding a lyre. It's kind of like a, an early guitar. It's like harp-shaped and got some strings. He, he probably would have composed the Psalms to be sung. And so that's why often today we, we continue, at least on the weekends, to, to try to sing the, uh, the psalm between the readings. After the gospel, there's that little alleluia thing, and it has a, a verse that's normally from the gospel. And then there's the reading from the gospel itself. And particularly that the gospel reading is, is reserved to someone who is ordained. So either the deacon or the priest will read or chant in tone the gospel to emphasize again that it is Jesus Christ himself, especially who speaks there, that the, the priest always stands in the person of, of Christ. And the, the deacon at mass is often seen as announcing things. So particularly the high point of that is to announce the good news. It's really a fulfillment of the scriptures because Jesus said, go and announce the good news, preach the gospel. Well, we actually bring that about at mass when the gospel is proclaimed. You see how it's much more than simply, well, we're going to read the gospel. No, the, the gospel is proclaimed. It is announced, and the very words that are in there are fulfilled because the gospel is being announced. I love in the, the Latin mass that uh, all of the mass is normally offered towards the east, so everyone faces east to anticipate the return of Jesus. Sometimes people think, oh, the priest had his back to the people. No, everyone was facing the same way, looking for Jesus to come. But for the gospel, the instructions are that the gospel is to be proclaimed to the north. Uh, because in previous geographic times, the, the pagans and the unchurched lands were, were seen to be to the north. The pagans are in the north. And so it symbolically, even at mass, represented as we turn toward the north to announce the gospel that it still needs to be preached. The good news still need to be announced. And much more than even just the priest sharing a Bible reading with you, it, 
this closed building, even that gave a sense of now what we hear, we need to go out and do, we need to proclaim. And that's why there's that, that little gesture at the beginning of the gospel when the, the priest or deacon says, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to, while that is being said, the, the person proclaiming the gospel, the priest or deacon, when he says a reading from, he traces with his thumb the sign of the cross on the page itself at the beginning of the gospel. And then as he's saying the rest of the words, a reading from the Holy Gospel, he traces a cross on his forehead, traces the cross on his lips saying nothing, and then traces a cross over his breast saying, according to St. Luke. It's meant to say that the, the sacred text that's on the page, sign the cross on the text, is meant to go from the, the text to our minds, in our lips, and ultimately to our, our hearts. That it's not meant to stay dead text on a page. It's meant to enliven our whole bodies, our minds, be in our mouth, in our words, and ultimately in our, our hearts. What a, a beautiful, simple little gesture. Uh, it used to be just the priest did that. Now it's clear that the people join in and, and do that as well. So we see how the word is meant to become flesh again in, in us, in our minds, our lips, our hearts. We allow the word to become flesh. What is spoken becomes incarnate, and we then go out and proclaim that word. Okay, that's just a, a brief overview of the, the scriptures. Let, let me just end then by, there's two other things that happen then in the, the liturgy of the word. Well, there's the homily, uh, which is, is more of a continuation of the word is proclaimed, and then the, the priest or the deacon, in some cases, gives uh, an explanation. Notice that this is normally more than a sermon. Like in Protestant churches, they would probably come up with, this is what I want to talk about today. And then they might find scripture passages to fit. Of course, in the Catholic church, that the scriptures are fixed in, in the lectionary. As I said, that cycle of readings, I didn't choose the readings this week. So the homily is normally based upon expounding upon what we, we heard in the readings. Uh, so it's notice a Catholic homily is normally a, a bit shorter than what a Protestant sermon might be, for instance, when you go to a Protestant church for worship. Well, the, the sermon is the high point. The, the preacher is going to get up and preach, you know. When I talk with non-Catholics, uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll remind me, well, Father Sean, if, if you only preached for 15 minutes in my church, you'd get fired. People feel like they didn't get their money's worth. Protestant sermon is going to be at least, you know, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, because that's the high point. Not so much in the Catholic Church. We're, we're here, and the, the high point, you know, is obviously the celebration of the Eucharist, and the liturgy of the Word is its own part, but the, the homily is just one part of one part. Uh, so I know you're thinking, well, then get this over with. I'm getting there, okay? The end of the liturgy of the Word. After... That's not, that's supposed to be sad, but I'm, I'm glad that you laughed at that. Uh, so after the homily, on Sundays and, and, and solemnities, we have the creed. Now that's an interesting thing to think of as a part of the liturgy of the word. We just, we just read the Bible. Where's, what's this other stuff, the creed? Well, we talk often about the Catholic Church having the fullness of truth. Everything Christ intended his church to have. Well, the scripture is an important part of that. The scripture, everyone would recognize as the revealed word of God. But God also speaks to us through his church. And so we have the creed as one of the most formal statements of what we would call the tradition. There's scripture and there's tradition. 
two streams of the, the truth that God wishes to share with us. So we've had the scripture, that's half of it, but what about the tradition? So we essentially sum up all the tradition of, of the church in the creedal statement, which is often at mass, the, the creed of the Council of Nicaea in the early fourth century, hence the Nicene Creed. If you really wanna be a Catholic geek, it was later modified at the Council of Constantinople later. So officially, this is the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed. So you wanna be really in. It's the Nicene Constantinople Creed, basically. It's the one that begins, we believe in one God. I believe in one God, credo in unum deum. This sums up the other half then, the tradition. And notice it's not something beyond the scriptures. We, we took the scriptures and had to say, okay, what does it mean that Jesus is incarnate and yet there's one God, but he talks about the Father and the Holy Spirit. It seems like there are three. So we have to figure out, well, how do we talk about three persons, one God? And so the, the creed is how the church has traditionally handed on much of the truth of scripture. So it has fancy words like, incarnate and consubstantial and things like that. Uh, there was a big to-do when we translated the, the missile a, a little over a decade ago. Well, no one knows what incarnate means. Well, it's a complicated word because it's only happened once, okay? That second person of the Holy Trinity who is non-substantial in the material of the world took on the material of the world. He took on flesh, carnate means flesh. He became incarnate. The second person of the Holy Trinity existed from all eternity, in time took on flesh. Hence we say he became incarnate. And that amazing moment is so important that we all bow during the creed at that moment. Everyone is supposed to do that. In the, the traditional Latin mass, everyone kneels at that moment. It's so important. Became incarnate of the Virgin Mary. That other fancy word, consubstantial, uh, it means that this incarnate, second person of the Holy Trinity, his essence, his substance, hence consubstantial, his substance, his being, is the same being as the Father and the Holy Spirit. They have the same substance, so consubstantial, with the substance of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Pretty technical stuff, and we, had, we pray that at Mass. We pray the creed as if we, to announce, this is what we believe. So, all of that then, culminates with the creed, and at least on Sundays, then we, we end with this, uh, what's called the universal prayer, or what we commonly call the, the petitions. Notice this is, this is not just kind of informal, go around and, hey, what do you want to pray for? And what do you want to pray for? Nothing that the liturgy is, is ever so just happenstance like that. Rather, the, this church actually says that there are things we're supposed to pray for, the church and the world, okay? We pray for the needs of the church and the world, and, and the particular needs of this community. So the petitions will always be kind of formed around those big things. They are universal, so they're, they're not specific. Like, well, I wanna pray for, you know, the, the county fair that is gonna go on, that no one gets hurt by a bull. Well, that's a little too specific. Uh, so the universal prayer is a lot more general. We might pray for the end of the pandemic or something like that specific, but they're for the needs of the church and the world. And so that then gets us ready to move into the next part of the Liturgy of the Eucharist, where we take all those needs and we offer them to God. And for that, you're gonna to have to come back next week, um, which I hope you do anyway. So that's part two in a, I don't know, I think it's gonna be about a four part 
series on the parts of the Mass. SeanTheBaptist.org, you check out last week. Uh, today we've talked about the, the liturgy of the Word, especially. Um, if you, if you want to do one thing to help get more out of Mass, well, look at the readings ahead of time. Get yourself a, a missile. So many people leave Mass saying, I just don't get anything out of it. Well, the Scriptures are not always so readily understood. Look at it during the week. If you were going to go to a baseball game, you'd probably look, who's pitching today? You know, what players are active? Is, is Salvi going to DH because it's Sunday? Or, you know, is he going to play catcher today? People do that all the time. They put a lot of effort into sports. Maybe check out ahead of time. What are the readings this Sunday? You got a whole week to prepare. Look at it. Google around a little bit. What's this Exodus stuff about? What's manna? You could do some research. And then when you get to Mass you'll find that you can participate more fully, which as I said last week, is the goal. Full, conscious, actual participation at Mass. And that conscious means with knowledge. So my goal over these next couple of weeks is to give you a little more knowledge about what Mass is, why we do it. And so hopefully with more knowledge, you will then participate more fully and actually. To be continued, stay tuned. <laughs>